For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Okay. Hello, folks. This is Gary Washburn uh, with the great Dana Barrows. Uh, we're still trying to figure out what to call this podcast. We'll call it the Barrows Washburn Podcast for now, um, early January. And let me, let me. I'm I'm a reporter for the Boston Globe. I've been covering the Celtics for the past 12 years. I've uh, been doing the NBA for almost 20. I did the last three years of the Seattle Supersonics before they moved to Oklahoma City, and I covered the Clippers way back in the day in the, in the uh, late 90s. So I, I got a lot of experience in the NBA. And uh, if you don't know Dana Barrows, you should know Dana Barrows, one of the great three-pointers shooters of his generation. A dude now who you still would not leave alone at the three-point line. I don't care how old he is. I don't care – what pickup game, if you leave this man alone and you do not, uh, if you're not within, if you don't treat him like Steph Curry on the court, you are in trouble. He's going, he can still knock down threes. He still looks like he could knock some down in, in an NBA game. I'm, I'm a little surprised he didn't uh, maybe pick up, you know, get, a, get, get back into that premium shape and maybe get one for them 10 days because, you know, uh, the league can always use shooters. Uh, but welcome, Dana. <laughs> Uh, it's great, great, great to talk to you. Um, as I said, Dana played 14 years in the NBA, a BC product. He played with the Sonics, the Sixers, uh, five years with the Celtics. Finished his career, actually with one game with the Celtics, finished his career with Detroit. And, you know, I mean, this man was a, a bucket machine. 41.1% career three-point shooter. And just imagine... If Dana Barrow shot as many threes as they do now, Dana's high three-point attempts for a for a season was 5.2. You got centers taking 5.2 threes a game now. That's nothing. Steph takes 13 a game. Just imagine if Dana Barrow's played in this era, how much money he would make and how much of an asset he would be as a knockdown shooter. He was before his time. He was one of the great pure shooters working around screens. He, he was fast. So uh, welcome, Dana. Great to have you. And uh, now you're in Boston. You have a basketball center. Just tell us about what you're up to and and, and what your thoughts on, on just kind of this the new three-point game this new three-point era that maybe you kind of missed out on. Definitely missed out on it. Um, but like you said, I, I own a gym, so I'm constantly out on the court um, staying in shape because all these these uh, high school young kids always talking crazy, so I got to get out there and handle <laughs> my business at any point, at, at any time, so I keep the sneakers in the bag always ready. But, um, yeah, man, it's been just to watch the NBA, it's – even for me as a shooter, I'm watching games and I'm turning the channel on a lot of these games, man. I'm watching, you know, horrendous shooting, watching. And this is not even just the four to four to 42 from the Celtics. I'm talking about game after game. I'm going back to Houston in the playoff game seven, where it was, you know, six for 48. And it's just tough to watch, man. And, and, and I sit here and I listen to a lot of commentators call these these, uh, you know, these shooters, great shooters, and then you did the 32, 33, 34% shooters and jumbling all these guys in with great shooters. I just don't, I don't, uh, it's tough to watch, man. It's definitely tough to watch. And what's, do you think the NBA is a little too reliant on the three-point shot? I mean, it's great for, you know, guys who can just, who can shoot, but it just turned into now, even big men, it kind of it kind of pushed the, the traditional big man out of the game. 
to where you got, you know, guys had to learn how to shoot the three who were literally big post players. I mean, you played in the 90s when it was Ewing and David Robinson and Hakeem. I mean, legitimate big man was obviously Shaq. I mean, the legitimate big man dominated the game. I mean, that you needed a big, burly, rebounding center. And now those guys, but even like, you know, Dwight Howard's hanging on, Andre Drummond, those guys have been essentially pushed out of the game because they can't shoot threes. I mean, that just seems something isn't right about that. Such a copycat league. No, di- no, no creative diversity from general managers. You know, it's just Golden State hits this, this era where they're on that ride, and then it's just let's jump on the bit. Let's try to follow that. Let's let's recreate that. And it's just so blah, blah across the board from in my standpoint of a being creative, like if you're going to beat this, you have to counteract in a different way. You can't recreate it. And to me, it's just shows the lack of diversity, you know, in across the board in a lot of the, the uh, front offices in, in the NBA. It's just a copycat thing. And in terms of just the direction of the league, I mean, Steph just, I mean, Steph's the record. He's, like, he's, he's, he's made 3,000 three-pointers, which is insane. I covered the year that Ray Allen broke the record, the initial season record, okay, like 200. Now, you know, I think Steph has almost 400 in the season. But when he, when, when Ray, I think it was 2006, shot um made 269 i mean i thought he was chucking i mean he was trying to get that record and now i mean that's normal 269 threes is not you know that is a pretty normal number now you got guys with the approach of 400 what change do you think was it the warriors you pointed to the warriors was it the was it this this the curry effect and I think the analytics guys maybe kind of said, well, the three-point basket is, you know, the game got really, really scientific and technical and more off the streets and off the gyms and into the boardrooms of people analyzing games that never even shot a basketball team. But what changed, do you think? When was it the Warriors? I think that had something to do with it. But we also, when I'm looking at these athletes as they come through even just my facility, the, the athletes now, the centers and the forwards are 6'11", but they're athletic and they can handle the ball and they can do, you know, a lot of different things that the big men couldn't do or, the, or weren't, weren't allowed to do back in the day. So because you see that ability to be on the perimeter, I think analytically it gives you the, the intention that, okay, he he's 6'11", but he can handle, he can dribble, he can shoot. Let's make everyone on the floor have the same ability, number one. And then number two, not only was it Golden State from an offensive standpoint where they shot a lot of threes, but they switched every single pick and roll through that era. They had Livingston and Iguodala. So they were switching two through five. And that also, you know, made coaches and and GM say, damn, that's a lot easier to play defense that way. So I think on both sides of the ball, they were the best at what they did on both sides of the ball. And that switching also had a huge impact because now you couldn't have that big center out on the floor because Mike Bibby would call Shaq out. Whoever Shaq's guarded, Mike Bibby's going to call you out and he's going to run that pick and roll, that Sacramento, you know, and that's what started to happen. So they said, damn, we got to get, these guys who can cover on the perimeter, they have they can be 6'11, but we need them to be able to shoot, triple, and switch a pick and roll, which in my mind is insane. Like if you think about Steph Curry is the best player in the league, LeBron's either best players in the league. All they have to do is call out your worst defender and you will switch onto them time after time and let Steph Curry play one-on-one with your center. Mm-hmm. Even if he is athletic, yeah, that's insane to me, man. <laughs> I, I remember going to a friend's AAU game a couple years ago, and it was so different. Like they literally had the guy running the point guard, the young man, 
and then literally four shooters like a spread throughout the floor behind the three-point line. It's like Curry is, has had such an impact on the game, and and he'll go down, obviously, top 75 player, Hall of Fame, all of, all of those things. But just his impact on shooting and the emphasis on shooting, how everybody now is taking threes. I literally saw this AU team just kill my friend's AU team by just shooting three, spreading the floor. It was like the whole taking it to the hoop, getting to the rim, laying it, none of that. Everybody spread, whoop, 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 spread. Whoever got had the open shot, shot it, three ball. Like, it just seems like the game – it's more open, and I'm, I don't know if it's more fun, but it's definitely taken away from the skill set of posting. Um, I mean, we've, we've watched LeBron James dominate the league for 18 years without really posting up at 6'9", 250, where, where Carl Malone had the same build, the same body, and Carl Malone basically – was a post guy, then learned how to kind of take his game away from the basketball. He hit the pick and roll jumper from Stockton. But it's just so interesting to watch. I want to get your thoughts on how players now, and this is interesting to me, are allowed to carry the ball. Growing up, you had to put your hand on top of the ball. We were taught fingertips. Now all these crazy crossovers, and it started with Iverson. Dudes carry the ball. I mean, they carry it without hesitation now. Right. How has that changed the game when you can't defend anyone one-on-one because they're allowed to carry the ball? Because back then, you could you could stick to most guys. A really, really good defender could stick to someone, an Alvin Robertson, someone who was a great defender could stick to someone one-on-one because you weren't allowed to pause your dribble and then go the same direction. Now, players are more talented now with the Euro steps and, and some of these things that they didn't do back then. But I believe carrying the ball being, has changed the entire complex of the complexion of the offensive game. Absolutely. Carrying the ball and the travel, uh, the travel step back threes and the, the four steps. Four steps. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine if you could take four steps, you could stop your dribble, Dana, and then take four steps back and then release and it was all good? Like, Crazy. One, two, three, four, boom. Like, if you did that in pickup games, all until, until probably 10, travel. Brunch of travel. Like, now that's normal. I mean, it's just, I, I enjoy the game. I think the game was fun to watch, but it's also very much, um, just so different than what it used to be and how these guys are great offensive players, the Durants, but I, you see these guys hit, like, I just remember, I always say, put your hand on top of the ball. If, they, if your hand went to the side, you can't let your hand, it's a carry. Now you can delay the dribble, uh, you know, and also players have added the Euro step and some of these step backs, the things that, that have evolved in the game. I wanted to talk to Dana about, People don't realize if they you were an all-star. You were made the 95 all-star team for Mm -hmm. a Philly team that was 24 and 58. It's very hard for a dude to make the all-star team on a team with 24 wins. Okay. Tell us about that season, the 94-95 Sixers. Barkley had been traded, so it was kind of it was it was some tough times out there. John Lucas was still was still around, still mentoring guys in Houston, was your coach. Can you tell me about that year and, and the all-star experience? It was just an amazing experience. I was there the year previous and had, you know, I, I think I averaged 11 or 12 a game in, with Jeff Hornacek. Me and him played really well together. And then um, Hornacek got traded for Malone. Fred Carter got fired. Lucas came in and they drafted uh, B.J. Tyler with like the 12th or 13th pick, I believe. And um it was just kind of like, here we go again when training camp started. So training camp starts and I do what I always, you know, do go great shape, have a great camp. And then um, Jeff Malone gets hurt. And I mean, he's, he's pretty much missed the whole year. I think I, it was going to be about a month. And then Luke, like, all right, Dan, I need you to shoot a couple more shots, blah, blah, blah. By the sixth or seventh game, like, he would call timeout and he was like, 
I told you to shoot the ball. If you don't shoot the ball, who else? Who, I don't want nobody else to shoot the ball. And that's he told me that once. You know me. I'm I like to let it go. So he yeah. told me that the whole team. Once you tell me that in front of the whole team, it's it's cracking. Now I'm like, okay. And it just the confidence just kept building and building. It just was um everything like you said. It was, it was amazing. It was slow motion. People that I my looked up to and played against in the Gary Paytons and the Jason Kids. It just seemed like I was playing in slow motion with them, like the Matrix on the court. Like it, they weren't faster than me, like they, they used to feel to me. They weren't stronger than me, like they used to feel. If some something had changed, and that's all for young people, especially understand that the mindset, man. That that's that's such an amazing tool for you as an athlete or whatever you do in life. But man, once that mindset is right, I just think that it uh. It carried over for me and uh, everything came together and the bomb, it's like the bomb went off, you know? I mean, what, what was it like playing? What was it like playing in the game? It was just slow motion. I just felt unstoppable. Like I, I, I was never like a gunner. Like I, I, even during that year, I believe I shot 48% from the floor or 49% from the floor. Yeah, you, um, shot, yeah, you shot, let me see here, let me get the number. You shot 49% from the floor, 46.4 from three. My goodness, 46.4. So I probably averaged 14 shots a game. Imagine if I went on, okay, I'm going to take 27 shots a game, and I might shoot 40%, but I'm going to average 29 a game. You know what I mean? So I was never that person because I could have. I was a free agent. I could have totally said, I'm going for the super bag, you know? Um, yeah. But I felt like I was playing well, and I was – I was showing people that I could play the point guard position and that was important to me. I didn't want to just totally go off and be, um, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, trying to be, there was no AI in the league at that point, but I didn't want to be that just, Oh, he's a scoring point. Cause that's kind of what my thing was. I was averaging eight assists and I wanted people to, to not forget about that aspect of my game. You know, that's the thing, Daniel. Like, I don't think fans understand pre AI, the scoring point guard was not necessarily viewed as a good thing. Like Magic was your prototype or Stockton. Isaiah was kind of as close to AI as you would get, but Isaiah was still like a guy with him and Dumars that could that could that could both kind of run the point and distribute. And Isaiah could switch to the two at times. But during your era, when that time was like a, a point guard who could just Pour it, you know, who, who just dropped buckets was not necessarily viewed. You were supposed your your initial job was get your teammates involved, and then AI came on and it kind of changed the game. Absolutely, I mean that those type of guards were okay. We're gonna take you off the bench, come off the bench, and do your thing because we don't want you to disrupt these other four or five guys. You know that's trying to get what we need done on the court because in the league, listen, it was tough for me coming in. Being a scorer and having Xavier McDaniel and Dale Ellis be like, yo, bro, swing the rock. Like, don't don't come down and pull up that three, that 30 footer. You know, it's not, it's not uh, we're not down or up 20. Swing the rock, and then you do that when it's your time, the last two minutes of the game, you know. So that was a tough thing. But listen, man, when that dude came in, I think that there was not a way you could let him play without allowing him to just be. The savage that he was. <laughs> yeah. He's like Spreewell. Like, you can't go Spreewell when Spreewell was in Golden State, you know, like, okay, we need you to make five passes and then, da, da, da. nah, he's a savage. Like, you got to give him the ball and get out his way. And even Larry Brown understood that and put the right pieces around him with that organization because that was such a game changer. But then he brought along with the, the Marberries came kind of at that time as well. Um, and you started getting more of those guards who could kind of do both, but could explode at any time if you really needed them to, you know? And that was a game changer for me. I, at least the second half of my career, I got to, to be a little more aggressive from that. Yeah, it was something I could encourage, because as you touched on in the early days of the 80s and the 90s, when you entered the league in the late 80s and the early 90s, the, um, the big man, the Ewings, or X-Man Xavier McDaniel, who was, I mean, not a nice guy. I mean, a dude, you know, he was a he was an enforcer. The league had many more enforcers than it does now. Like, I don't even, 
I can't even name the league's biggest enforcer. Like there was 30 enforcers. Every team had one or two enforcers back then. And the big men or the forwards were like, no, give me the rock. And then you, everyone stood around while they went to work in the post. And that was fine. It wasn't ball movement, cut to the basket. It wasn't this Princeton offense. It was like, let big man go to work, get to the free throw line or get a, a bucket up. That had to be an adjustment for you as, I, as you said, your career progressed because you were able to play in the era also because you kind of transcended eras. You played in the early, you started your career in 90, but you finished in 04. So you had a Marbury, you had an Iverson, you had, you know, a, a, you had Kobe, you had, you know, I mean, you had these guys that were, ch- that were, that were ball dominant guards. Right. And it, Man, I, when I first came in the league, I came in under Bernie Bickerstaff, who drafted me, and he, I would back up Dale Ellis and play maybe five minutes a game, and he would say, if you don't shoot, you're coming out. I'm putting you in the game to shoot. If you don't shoot, you're coming out. And then I directly went to KC Jones the next year when Bernie left, and KC said, if you ever shoot that ball, especially behind that three-point line without Benoit Benjamin touching the ball first, you're coming out the game. Wow. And that's how it was for that. <laughs> years with the, my last two three years in Seattle it was get the ball to Benoit Benjamin Gary Payton was the perfect fit for that system where Casey wanted him to come in and Gary could have done a little more earlier but he was in that same system where boy throw the ball in the post cut through the hoop and if you get a shot on the weak side let it go before the clock goes off so listen that was and, and if I would go 0 for 2 even in 92 93 if I was 0 for 2 oh all right come out yeah. the game you know, teams, teams are only taking and see, we, we in Seattle are one of the f- few teams, us in Phoenix, who really shot threes because we had Eddie Johnson, myself, um, even uh, Gerald Patio coming off the bed. Like we yeah, had a couple Gerald Patio. Let it fly. So when we played Phoenix, they had Marley and they had they had um, Danny Ainge and they had some other shooters. So yeah. when we were playing. Maybe Golden State was another team similar to that. But other than that, man, we were playing games 81 to 82, 83, and it was a, it was a half-court game. You know, it was tough for me to flourish during those early, you know, 89 to 91 and, and 92 with the Bulls playing the triangle. And it's not like zoom, 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 because yeah. in my year, I averaged like 27 against the West Coast and like 18 against the uh, – <laughs> the conference that's you touch on that dana that is when and i don't think it's like that now the conferences each conference played a different style of ball the western conference led by magic because that was kind of the 80s that was a kind of a taken from the 80s the the western teams ran the ball fast break get it up and down alley-oops the east was half court moses malone get your ass in the in the paint rebound like it was such a different style. It was a grinding style in the East and in the West. It was fun and gun. And you remember those Douglas teams from the early from the eighties, like get it up. And I remember Paul Westhead jumped from Loyola Marymount and went to Denver and tried that style. It didn't work. But the Western Conference, it was just. I don't think young people remember that. The the Western Conference was the fun league. And the East was the, the, the grits lead, the defensive lead, the bad boys, the, you know, right. I mean, even the Bulls, as much as is, it was fun to watch Michael Jordan and it was enjoyable. They didn't run a fun offense. They ran a triangle. I mean, they ran an offense that highlighted Jordan. They got it up and down. They had such great players. But the East was, like you said, 95, 92, 80, 80 41 with the, with the Knicks and all that. And then you played in, in that, in that time with the Sixers. I mean, what was it like toward the end of your career when you're starting to you, you see Iverson? You were you got a chance to say you transcended generations. You got to see Iverson in his prime, a young Kobe. What was that like when you were kind of on the on the end of your career to see what the future was going to be? Amazing, because I came in the league playing against my idol, Michael Jordan. You know, who was just even though he was only three three or four years older than me. I was idolizing his mental, his, not only his physical game, but his mental game. I was idolizing his whole persona from the time I saw him at North Carolina. I don't know what it was. And then I get to play against him. 
you know, along with Magic and Bird. And then as my career finished out, I watched, you know, T-Mac, Penny, Shaq, all these players. And then I got to finish my career watching the next idol, which was Kobe. He was my idol at the end, you know, because yeah. he was almost era image. I was like, oh, it's like MJ all over again. Like, yeah. dude, you know, both sides of the ball. And so to me, I got to play against and play with, I played with Moses Malone. I played against Larry Bird, Dr. J all the way through. And I just missed the LeBron uh, draft the year I retired. So I got to see the game change. I got to see the players from the eighties son, all these players who are now, they got sunned by the players in the eighties. So I yeah. got to play with them and I'm watching their sons play. Sons you know? play, dominate, yeah. It was magic. I mean, everyone's Jordan, uh, LeBron, LeBron, man. Magic was LeBron 30 years ago, man. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> no disrespect to LeBron. You know, no disrespect. Magic, yeah, people don't have any idea. I think, you know, when LeBron hit the league, I, I mean, uh, uh, Magic, I just remember being young and just hearing six foot nine point guard. People was like, what? I mean, the prototype point guard, no, they was Tiny Archibald, was a guy who was small. 6'1", run the show, be really fast. And here comes a dude, 6'9", who can do all of what they do. And then had the size, the eyes in the back of his head. I mean, I mean, I just think people say compare Jordan and LeBron, but I'm on that team that says compares more Jordan, sorry, Magic Johnson to LeBron for his four right. vision, especially as his career has progressed. I mean, I think... LeBron is, has been a guy who's been heavily scrutinized or whatever, but some of the things he still does, even at age 37, just incredible in his, his floor vision, his basketball, how he, he thinks three or four plays ahead of most guys on the floor. He sees things that, I mean, and it's not his fault. Some of his teammates have not come through with, with hitting some of the shots uh, that he created, but it's just funny to see that Magic Johnson, because I just think people don't approve. People appreciate magic kind of because, you know, for that Larry Bird rivalry, but just to see him growing up in Los Angeles on a nightly basis, just that, what he brought to the game, the fast break, the go look pass. Then he eventually learned how to shoot. I mean, became, you know, wasn't a great looking jumper, wasn't, wasn't pretty, but he did make defenses a little bit honest. Then I want to touch on, um, the current set, we'll touch on that. Well, the current Celtics, boy, I mean, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a speechless situation. So much hype into this year with new coach Ime Doka bringing in Josh Richardson, Dennis Schroeder, bringing back Al Horford. They apparently got the reinforcements for Brown and Tatum. They're supposed to maybe not be on the level of a Milwaukee or Brooklyn, but maybe a tick below, hey, a team that can maybe get that third seed, compete with the Miamis and the Philadelphias. And here they are, 18 and 21. They blow a 25-point lead against the Knicks on Thursday night. Um, they're the only team in the, they've blown 19, four leagues of 19 points a game. Their offense just goes to, to crud in the fourth quarter. What is your take on this team can they be a playoff team and make some noise? Should they blow it up? I mean, now everything is, seems like you would have never thought of trading Jalen or Jason, or probably more like Jalen. But now everything seems to be up to question because uh, they've been so disappointed. Yeah, I mean, I can't disagree with anything you said. It's just been, um, and I think when you look back at these, these, this team, you know, you have Marcus, you know, Jalen and, and Jason, those guys have had so much success early, you know. Um, and I think that kind of gives you the the kind of the feeling that, okay, this is what this is, you know, but you're in a different space at that time. You've gone from, um, you know, I, I'm not going to say Rondo to Isaiah to Kyrie to Kemba. All these ultra male ball dominant guys have have been in this in your, in your presence during the success, and we've expected that you would take those things and and you would become those guys. And I think those expectations have rose insurmountably every year on those two guys. And 
it's just a big burden at this point because the success hasn't come. And I believe that that is just creating more of a monkey on the back because, you know, we anticipate success because of the expectations. And those were risen, those were risen three years ago and even two years ago in the bubble when you went to the, to the Eastern finals again. So, man, expectations are a monster. And when you're not reaching them, all things are on the table. And this has been a couple of years now since that, that bubble. And like, like I just said, all things are on the table from you just listen to anyone and everyone across the NBA spectrum. And they're all saying the same thing. It's just like you said, it's, it's across the board. It's on the table. And that's sad because it's at this point, you would think these two guys who I've seen interact at my gym, great, love each other off the court, seemingly love each other on the court, seemingly. And that is, the hardest thing to make happen. So yeah, I don't it's tough. It's like last night or Thursday against the Knicks, Tatum is going to work and Jalen is standing in the corner. Like it's somehow they need to help each other, whether it's a pick and roll, cutting to the basket, making it like life easier because Tatum just worked too hard. Last, like he kept them close. And he hit the tie-in jumper before the miracle shot by R.J. Barrett. But right. it, that was some hard work Tatum put in. And you look yeah. at you look it, at the tough situation too, yeah. because as we critique, which we all are going to do, you still have to go out and get twenty-five and ten yeah. or twenty ten, and you have to do it efficiently. <laughs> you know, not on ten for thirty-seven. So no. even through all this you still have to go on the court and score 25 to 30 points a game be efficient and win the game not just score the 25 and 30 and then uh you know have a 19 point loss that you know that 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 to me is the key because these guys as we said have been there numerous times and it's not like al hasn't been there marcus hasn't been there um, there's been a lot of change, but so what? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's the league is the league, and I I just hope Udoka gets it together, man. I just hope he has a, an opportunity, you know, a real opportunity, because ultimately, every as a player, everything comes down to what the players do on the court. It's up to the players to make. Yeah. What will you be your suggestion to how they can make their offense in the fourth quarter, like? Against the Knicks, you have Dennis Schroeder, who's a 32% three-point shooter. He's a very streaky three-point shooter. I always think he's better than that. And he probably should be 37 to 38%, but he's 32. Marcus, we, we've seen Marcus the last seven, eight years. Marcus is probably one of the more polarizing Celtics. Um, you'll have half Boston loves him, half doesn't love him. You know, they love his fire, but they think he shoots too much. Last night or Thursday, he shot 10 threes. He shot six threes in the fourth quarter. He made two of them, but none down the stretch. Um, and then you've got those two guys along with Robert Williams and Jalen in the corner. But the Knicks and other teams are obviously going to say, listen, there's nobody on this floor besides Jalen and Jason that we're scared of, Okay. So if you want to give Schroeder open threes, and especially Marcus, please do. So Marcus was wide open on a few occasions, missed them. How do you run an offense, or what lineups do you think that they may should do to maximize Tatum and Brown? Because it seems like other teams, the other night, DeJounte Murray against the Spurs, other teams find ways to get buckets against the Celtics in the fourth quarter. A couple weeks ago was Giannis, and then it was Joel Embiid. Those are great players, but they've given up. I mean, last night it was 48. They've given up some big games to players who aren't all-stars. What do you think the Celtics should do offensively in the fourth quarter to make things easy? There has to be some type of, you know, offense. And I know we run the – there's a weave action, there's a hit. But to me – Every team walks the ball up the court and doesn't really have time to run an offense. 
Everyone's dropping the ball. By the time you get over half court, it's 15 seconds left, 14 seconds left. It's a pick and roll. It's one or, one or two little things. Uh, and it's just they don't they don't push the ball up the floor fast enough to get into an offense. To me, I would just love to see coming off baseline screens. And if they switch, you have to have alternative sessions off of that. And to me, Robert Williams is holding this whole thing together. Wow. Because he is going to get maybe a max damn deal, bro. Like if he keeps playing and he stays healthy, if they did not have him in the middle, locking down the middle of the floor with a three, four, five blocks a game, I think it would be worse. My opinion, and I've said this since, <clears throat> excuse me, since the bubble. When I watch the Celtics, I say, okay, my squad needs to get at least 12 to at least make 12 to 13 threes because they take so many. if they don't make 12 to 13 threes they're not going to be in the game in my opinion yeah. yes I, if, if if that's the way you're going to play four or five years ago top one of the top five defensive players in the league now if you want to shoot threes and you're still the top five defensive player in the team in the league you can balance that off somewhat. You're not stopping anyone, especially when Robert Williams is out of the game. So to me, he has to stay in the fold. And if he doesn't stay healthy, now you have, to me, a whole bunch of problems on the defensive end. So I think he's the, he's kind of the glue that's holding it together, but something mm. has to change. I don't know what it is. I Hopefully they don't trade any of those guys, but at this point, Again, it's all on the table, and I just wish this turns around. I keep expecting it. I keep saying, no, this is, this is, this is no way this is going to keep happening. And it just keeps happening, you know. Um, it just keeps happening. That's the thing. It's like losses can't seem to get any worse, but they get worse. I just remember even this month, you know, they, they go down, they, they pick up a good win, at Portland, they play well. They score 145 points. Everything is going well. Then they get two games in L.A. The Lakers spank them. I don't know what happened. They don't show up with that fire, that effort. The next night, Brandon Boston, a young kid, who's a, a second-round pick, scores 27 points, 18 and a quarter. They lose to the Clippers. They, they fall behind, make a rat. Like It's like it keeps getting worse. The Clippers lost. And then, you know, they lose to the Warriors. Uh, you know, a, a good game, but a game that they made so many mistakes in. And then uh, the, the Philadelphia game where MB goes off. And then the Christmas Day game where they played so well, national television audience. They're looking like this is the Celtics team we thought we'd see. Then here comes six minutes left. They get outscored, I think, 19-4. to four. Giannis takes over. They lose. And it's so much. And then you think, okay, it can't get any worse than two nights later against Minnesota. They're playing basically a G League team. And, and some dude, Jalen Noel, comes off the bench and scores 28 on it. It's like it can't keep getting worse. And it keeps getting worse. The Clippers game back in Boston, like you alluded to, four for 42 from the three-point line. It's like, hey, man, stop shooting threes. If it's not your night, just go to the rim, get to the free throw line. As we talked about before, in the 80s and the 90s, get some fouls, rack up some easy points, make some layups. No, no, no. We're going to keep chucking the threes. No, I mean, and it just keeps getting worse. And they come back, you know, 10th, 10th Elijah, by beating Phoenix, really good win. And they come back, you know, barely beat Orlando, San Antonio, mislayup at the buzzer, and then the Knicks game. It's like, this team is pulling the hearts out, literally, of their fan base. And you don't know whether it's – I don't know if a team can just turn off, flip on the switch, and suddenly become a playoff-caliber team without major changes or significant changes by the deadline or some lineup changes because it just seems like you keep hoping, crossing your fingers as a Celtic fan, if you're a Celtic fan, you're a former Celtic player. You bleed the green. And it just, like, last night has to be a heartbreaker for you and for Celtic faithful who see this team going 57 to 32. I mean, 
you don't lose that game. I don't care. It's not about the last shot. Dana, you don't lose. You cannot lose that game. And if I'm um, the coach and I'm the GM, and, I, and if I'm the if, if if I'm the coach and I'm Brad, I'm seeing the inconsistencies and I'm saying, okay, it looks so good at this these times, and then it something changes and it doesn't look good. So you're teased by, do if I'm gonna make this move, I'm I'm gonna I'm this this might happen. The good side might go away. You know what I mean? Yeah. With you're in that you're in that zone as an organization where sometimes it looks unbelievable and sometimes it looks like it doesn't work and you're scared to say okay do i jump out the tree because if i do make a move Jalen brown could go somewhere and average 28 a game and, yeah. da, 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 and multi-all-star so you don't to me they're so inconsistent it's hard to say this is the reason. This is the reason. It's never the same. You can't figure the reason out. So how do you make the change? Where do you make the change when you just don't even know where to, to begin? Because it's you're amazed in certain points in the first half of a game. In the second half of a game, you're blown away on the opposite end. <laughs> so you're going to have to pick the poison, I guess. I, I, you know, We're at the point where it may get to that. How do you as a player, like Udoka said that they weren't mentally tough. And there's got to be something mental about the fourth quarter. That's winning time. That's when the great play, because you've played a long time. You've played a great college player, great pro player. You've, seen, you've been on bad teams. And I'm sure even that Sixers team that was 24-58 had their share of leads in the fourth quarter, you know, because very few NBA teams are just not competitive. Most right. bad NBA teams are teams that play three and a half good quarters, but they don't know how to win. You know, you get – I used to look I, – I, when I did the Clippers, and the Clippers went – the year I covered, they went 36 and 46. They played teams like Utah coming off a of back-to-back. Malone and Stock, you could see it. They would say, okay, this is what's about to happen here. We're about to let you win this game, but you're going to have to blow us out in the first three quarters. Because if it's close to the fourth, we're just going to take it from you. Right. Like, we're going to win this. So you right. have three quarters to build a 20-something point lead or, or knock us out. Because if it's nine, eight points, then we're going to have to go to work. We're going to take this one because we're tired. So we're not, we didn't, we didn't fought with the Lakers the night before, had a tough game at Sacramento, at Portland. So and you would see the good teams knew when to turn on. Magic's Lakers always was good for that. Like, the great teams know when they have a vulnerable opponent. But then the bad teams not necessarily get lose by 25 points. They lose by seven because they can't hold leads. How do you right. become tougher and hold leads? And get because I don't know if you can do, just make that mental flip of the switch and say, okay, I'm not going to choke. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get nervous or something because even Robert Williams admitted Thursday night that they get rattled. Like, yeah. whoa, pro, this isn't AAU, high school or college. These are pro players. You're getting rattled in the fourth quarter. That's not a good sign. And I, the thing that really stands out to me is, you see the teams who do it well aren't as talented. Phoenix isn't as talented as any of the Lakers. They're not as talented, but they have that cohesive cohesiveness as a unit, and that motor is running so smoothly, along with Golden State, who's missing damn near everyone in the beginning of the season and jumped out to almost the same record as Phoenix, but they're not as talented as these teams, but the cohesiveness, the togetherness, the ball movement, for some reason, clicks in their organization on when they step on that court. And to me, the Lakers who have more talent, you know, um, a lot of these teams who have more talent just aren't getting it together. You know what I mean? And that's a testament to the teams who, from an organizational standpoint, have built that roster and they made it work. And that's a testament to them. And I think that's what 
we now as as a Celtics, you know, city, we're gonna have to build a roster, whatever that is, mm -hmm. that is conducive to how we want to play and how the fans want to see the game play because this is Boston. Yeah, they want to see the game played a certain way. Toughness, you know, and, and they don't want to just see the shimmy and they don't. That's not who we are. <laughs> you know, you got to dive on the floor. That's why you said Marcus is so polarized. Through all the three-pointers, that dude is going to, you know, once a game, he's going to dive six feet into yep. the stand. He's going to create that throwback to what the fans want to see. So mm -hmm. we need that. If, if you're going to play this style where it's just willy-nilly, and no defensive toughness, you know, I just don't see how it's going to work from the roster standpoint. You know, it seems we seem very athletic, but I'm not sure what percentage we rank in terms of the defensive end. But if it's not, the offense is going to look the way it is. You have to change at least from a defensive standpoint. And that's where you start because it's not, you know, it's not going to work on either end. Yeah, I got a question for you we wrap this up. Okay, you work with kids. You've been working with kids in the center for years. You got your own. I've been in a tremendous center where kids poop. But as we all know, the youngsters are different now. They hang out together. The AAU culture. These guys always got a game the next day. I see. I've heard so many from Celtic players. Well, we can't trip off this, and we got another one tomorrow. Okay, the culture. NBA culture teaches players, don't trip off this one, get over it. You got another one tomorrow or the next day. But I think that lends to getting used to losing because you always say, well, we got another one tomorrow. And the Celtics pride, in my opinion, watching it has been challenged many times this year, you know, by players, Brandon Boston dropping 18 and a quarter, uh, you know, Evan Fournier hitting 10 threes on you, like stuff that in the 80s and 90s, the next time Fournier would go up into the lane, Xavier McDaniel would be like, okay, dude, boom. Um, you're not doing all that. You're not doing that anymore. Like this isn't right. happening the way it is. You're going to score the hard way. You're going to score for the free throw line. Like no more of this pretty stuff. Like how do you, how do, how do young players get that want to, to win, to be great, to be not to take losses hard, but then also not take them too hard where it messes your mental up. Like it seems like the younger players all well, we got another one tomorrow because that's what the league teaches you. But if I'm a, a Celtic, if I'm and dudes are shimmying, like you said, dudes are hitting 10 threes, they play 48 again on Saturday. He's coming off 10 threes. In a generation ago, he would not be getting off those threes. He would get either fouled, something would happen. I'm not talking about dirty, but just like, hey, bruh, ain't, things ain't coming easy to you. How do you change the mentality? Because you work with kids who I'm sure hang out, do all that stuff. They, some of them want to win, and some of them are cool. Well, hey, I scored 20. I'm good. Like, how do you change that mentality? It's tough to change because that's the mentality of most of these teams, young kids, especially high school kids, where it's a more about it's more about the show than about the game. It's not about the coaches are watching. They just want to see the talent. They don't care who wins. You know, the players say, OK, well, I played against the number seven player in the country. I'm the number 10. I had 18. He had 14. That's all that matters. I gave him the business. It's in. And, and there's so much money on the line. There's so much money on the line that you have to take it personal. Everything is personal. Like it's, if, if, if there's a difference between, like you see, even at the elite level, there's a difference between max and super max. You yeah. know what I'm saying? There's, there's levels. So these guys are so in tune with their brand, their marketing, because the amount of money is so phenomenal that basketball can become secondary if you are successful enough off the court, subconsciously basketball can become secondary. And it doesn't matter if you're still working hard and you're still doing the same workouts and you're eating the same foods. Some subconsciously, it's just like when Mike Tyson lost to Buster, 
he didn't have the same shine. Yeah. Shine. yeah. I mean, it's not oh. the same. You can't recreate it. It's, it's just an unre... And it's, it's like when I, you know, when we grow up, you buy a dog and the dog wasn't mean and they would say, well, put gunpowder in the food and the dog would be... I remember that. Can't do that. Yeah. You know, the, it is what it is. An NBA player has to have that, he has to have that in him. You know, um, if you can't take a guy who was a, who was a, um, you know, someone who has a certain mentality and then say, okay, we're going to put you into this other mentality. You have to draft and build your roster with certain people of certain characteristics. And that's who the, what the most successful organizations do. Well, Dana, uh, it's been great for our first edition. Um, folks, we're going to continue this throughout the season, talk hoops. Dana's feelings on, we can talk, we can touch on college basketball. We can touch on BC. I, you know, they've been struggling, you know, tough loss against North Carolina, but the, the hopeful the rise of the BC program, the BC needs to come back and, and be a factor and just everything basketball in general. And I said, Dana's, does a great job at his, his academy working with kids. So he is still very much in tune to the game, to what youngsters, these 13 and 14 year old phenoms, as, as he explained, are thinking. So it's great to have him uh, for this podcast. So we'll continue next week. Uh, you know, we'll talk more Celtics. They got some games coming up, uh, some couple of games against Indiana, you know, some games that, they, that are winnable games. But if you follow themselves this year, they can win them, they can lose them. You know, right. you just don't know the team you're going to get. That's been probably the most frustrating part of this season is it's not that they don't have the talent. It's not a talent issue. It is a mental issue and the execution issue down the stretch of this team. So this season could, could go many ways, and we will follow it for you. Thank you, folks. The Barrels Washburn podcast is in the books. Thank you, and we will see you next week. Peace, guys. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.